Hello and welcome to The Week at Work. Uh, I'm your host again this week, Dave Gibney. Um, I'm joined by my co-host, Michelle Byrne. But with us, we have a, a another uh, special guest, a returning guest. Uh, we have John Collins, TD from Dublin South Central um, joining us. As usual, well, I was going to go straight to the papers, but um, I might as well give a plug to the Left Block Project. Um, we're nearly up and running on the website. We said that last week. Um, but if people want to know more, you know, The Week of Work is one of the podcasts of the Left Block Project Um uh, a political education as well as a, an alternative media project so um, if you want to know more about left block or about the week of work you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash left block um, without further ado what we normally do is we go to the front pages of the papers i'm not sure who wants to go first who wants to tell us what they've been looking at there michelle we'll go to you yeah first. do you want to go first yeah i'll jump in there yeah, so I was having a read of the Irish Times again this morning um, and there's a very, very striking image of um, a young woman with two guards kind of um, kind of leaning on top of her, arresting her. Um, so this is a picture from the events that are happening over in the UK at the moment um, where the title reads, Mourners defy police to join vigil for murdered Sarah. So this is a case around um, a, a woman who was kidnapped and murdered um, on her way home from a friend's house. Um, one night just after she got off the phone to phone to her boyfriend about 15 minutes later then she was abducted and and murdered and you know she the kind of the discourse I suppose online is very much like she did all of the things right she was walking in a lit area she called her boyfriend on the way home and still women are unsafe um, and I suppose you know and obviously there's been a, a, a cop actually arrested for this um, so this so this is kind of showing um, a very heavy-handed response um to a vigil for a woman who's been murdered by a guard. So I suppose like a lot of people can read in between the lines on that. Like obviously maybe there's a bit of defensiveness in it, but it just seemed like a very, very um, tough response to a vigil for a woman who's murdered. I suppose there's a lot of like discourse as well this week, like International Women's Day was this week and it's just, you know, outpouring of messages and posts on Facebook about how hard it is to be a woman. Um, like not only this week and on the back of the story, but every day. Um, and there's always this onus as well on women to kind of come out and tell their story. Um, and like, I, I, you know, I kind of reflected on it myself and I was like, oh, but my kind of reflection was, which story would I tell? You know, everyone's putting up a story, but there's just so many, every woman I know has a story that they could mm. add to the, the discourse in this. And the fear of existing, the fear of being murdered is just like, it, like it's, it shouldn't, shouldn't be a thing. Like, um, you know, it's 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 mad. But anyway, so this this kind of article is around the kind of the police action at this vigil. Um, and as I said, a very striking um picture of a woman being arrested um by the police at that. Um I suppose right beside that article, I can't go without mentioning um the news that's after breaking around Vradker's leak upgraded to criminal probe. Um, so this is uh, the preliminary inquiry into leaking of contra uh, confidential contract by Leo Vradker when he was Taoiseach, has been upgraded to criminal investigation by Garda headquarters, which I'm sure a lot of people of this um, podcast will find very interesting to hear about. Um, so this is a decision, the decision follows the provision of a statement by a senior official at the Department of Health to the National Bureau of Criminal Investigation. Um, so it seems that, that, you know, that this is going further. Um, it's not often we see politicians actually held account for when they're, you know, um, involved in what looks like to be some sort of corruption. Um, so, you know, it, it really does kind of highlight um, like a lot of the issues of the political classes here. But they are, the Bureau is examining communications. It says they're at an advanced stage. Um, but it, you really wonder, will, will something come from this? Is it a breach of data law? Is it a breach of the Official Secrets Act? Um, is it the, you know, is it the Criminal Justice um, Corruption Offences Act? Um, so it, it is interesting. And there's a comment here as well. Um, Vadker, um, who's who is in a position to resume T-shopping at the end of 2020, has suggested he cannot be prosecuted under Official State uh, Secrets Act as he was an office holder at the time. Therefore, he is absolved of everything according to him. Um, but of course, at the same time, he's saying he didn't do anything so wrong. So, I, I, you know, there's that mix. So this, and other acts um, the statute books, including the Criminal Justice Act, do not offer immunity to office holders who allegedly provide documents which bestow uh, influence to friends, however. So there is kind of, um, you know, conflicting information there from what Leo is saying to then what the, the law is saying. So it'll be very interesting to see 
um, how that um, progresses. And I think you have a couple of things to say about that as well, Dave, but there are two on the front page, the Sunday Times anyway, that are definitely worth reading. Yeah, John, do you want, we, we might, I don't know whether you have any observations on the Leo Varadkar leak or if you want to cover uh, another front page, where do you want to go with this, John? Yeah, um, interesting, um, the, the points that Michelle was making about uh, the um, issue over in Britain, <clears throat> because, um, you know, thinking about it, um, and it sort of brings it home to you when you see an incident like that happening, for every woman, and I, and I presume gay men and that as well, and, and and young men are watching around them all the time when they go when they're coming home late at night or anything like that, you know, in dark places. Um, I would have even have walked down the middle of a road rather than walked straight by a laneway, you know, because you're just on the same one, maybe just be on the safe side. Um, where a lot of friends would always ring each other up after they got a taxi home to make sure they got home okay. So they're things that are part of, of everyday life for women. Um, uh, and I don't know really whether it'd be the same for, for men would have the same cautions about them sometimes on the streets. Um, but certainly what happened in Clapham Common last night was very, very uh, j- just wrong. And I know they were saying that they broke the COVID you know, rules and all that. Um, and I suppose if they didn't police something like that, if you had an anti, you know, uh, an anti-vaccine march, how would the police then respond to it, you know? So there's all these issues. But, I mean, they certainly went in hard and heavy um, on, on women that were there for a peaceful protest. Um, the other point, um, really, today is um, the issue around the Davy um, uh, uh, scandal, or the Davy 16, um, where... Uh, it looks like legislation that could have been brought in uh, and should have been brought in um, in 2018. Um, it's called, it's in today's papers in the Sunday Business Post. Um, uh, legislation um, that I think the opposite, where we were calling for it to be brought in, the Senior Executive Accountability Regime based on English law um, where executives will be, individuals will be held accountable for their actions with fines and bonus, uh, fines and, and bonus, stopping bonuses and all that. Um, which in saying that it wouldn't have affected the 2014 incident here with Davy. Um, but the the level of impunity these um these institutions have, and, and that was just right in the middle of coming out of the um the banking collapse um, and also on mortgages, the the um what you call them, the what's those mortgages, the tracker, the tracker mortgages in that time, the scandal around that. And um, so I think it just raises a, it pulls the cover off again, how these institutions are, are just feel they're, they're, they're untouchable. Um, yeah, it, I was, I was listening to some of this on Morning <clears> Ireland and, <throat> and different radio shows over the week. Um, it, just observations and some of the questions that were being asked that we were, we were, were not getting the answers to. Like, are any of these people employed in the Department of Finance? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the refusal to tell us any of this information. Yep. Um, are they in regulator roles? These people who acted what, in what allegedly or appears to be in a corrupt fashion. And yet, when we ask the question about where these 16 people are, because this isn't pocket change that we're talking about. <laughs> these four, are four and people- a half million. Yeah. And and not only that, so that's one issue that we know of. Like, But these people were in charge of portfolios that were worth probably close to the billions, you know, the hundreds of millions anyway. Um, and, you know, if this is their actions and this is how they feel they can behave uh, in 2014 in the midst of an economic crisis that's brought the country to its knees, what are they going to be behaving like in boom times? <laughs> you know, so there, there's um, there's that aspect to it. I, I've read through um, some of the Varadkar stuff as well. I mean, when I saw the tweet last night saying that the Sunday Independent were going to be covering this story, I said, right, I better go out and buy this in, though. I normally review other papers. So this is my first time buying the Sindo in quite a while. Hopefully it'll be one of my last as well. But it's um, <laughs> it's an interesting story. And one aspect of it, which hasn't been picked up really because it's on the inside of it, is that SIPO, Standards in Public Office, are stepping down their investigation while the Gardaí are pursuing their investigation. Now, 
I, I might have mentioned on the show last year, I'm not 100% sure if I did, but SIPO once investigated me and investigated the Right to Water campaign. Joan, you would probably remember some of this stuff. <laughs> they investigated the yeah. trade unions who were funding Right to Water to try and stop them from holding demos because they were saying that it was above the, the, the donations that were needed from the unions to hold this were above the 2,500 euros threshold. So they were telling Right to Water to return money to the trade unions now right to water was run and financed by trade unions so they were telling right to water to return money that had already been spent to the unions or face prosecution now they actually handed a file to the dpp they gave it to the guardi and said prosecute these people for pursuing an agenda that was dictated by members to our legislated um guidelines so the trade unions act in, enables trade unions to campaign on issues that are, are are relevant to the members and that the members have voted on and said, yeah, go and pursue those. So SIPO tried to block all that stuff down. And I'm fascinated to see that SIPO are, are now holding, washing their hands of an inquiry into a Taoiseach actually handing over a, a document that the Minister for Health couldn't access. Our own Minister for Health was looking to see this document. He couldn't. But Varadkar as Taoiseach who says, you know, he was doing nothing wrong. He can give it to whoever he likes. He wouldn't give it to his own ministers, but he would give it to a friend. And that friend just happened to be in an agency or running an agency that was in negotiations for a contract that was worth an awful lot of money to GPs. So, I mean, this isn't, you know, um, just oh, somebody throwing a, throwing a favor over there and no no victims or anything. This, this was about empowering and giving Matthew O'Toole uh, a leg up and advantage over a rival body. And I'm interested in the fact that SIPO are washing their hands of it at this moment in time and saying, no, nah, nothing to do with us. So it, it's a peculiar situation when SIPO thinks that they can actually uh, chase down certain campaigns and certain groups but are washing their hands of powerful people. You know, this is this is why you bring in these types of bodies is to look at the people who have power and are abusing that power. And SIPO are saying, no, we're going to leave this one to the Gardaí. We're not even going to bother investigating whether it was anything to do with standards in public office, which it was. So the Gardaí can look at the, the stuff you were talking about, Michelle, there about the, the Official Secrets Act and all that sort. SIPO are supposed to look at whether or not this was a breach of standards in public office. That's a different thing. Right? And there might be legal prosecutions out of it. Anyway, look, I get really annoyed by every time I hear the word SIPO or the, the, the term <laughs> so Forgive me, I just want to say Just on the front pages of um, the Sunday Indo as well, and we might want to get into this in a second, but um, vaccine SAR, supply will get back on track. It's talking about the biggest delivery of up to 200,000 doses um, of vaccine uh, on or near March 31st. And it's saying the shipments will be comprising of the Pfizer one, the Moderna one, and the AstraZeneca one. Um, and before I get into the rest of it, you know, it's, it's it, well, I will, it says near the end of that story, it says the Taoiseach Michal Martin spoke directly with AstraZeneca this weekend about its failure to deliver tens of thousands of vaccines that it had been promised in February and March. And I don't know, Joan, I'll come to you next on this one, but breaking news this morning um, that AstraZeneca now is being suspended. NEFA have announced that they're they're suspending AstraZeneca because of, I think, four blood clot cases over in Norway, which is not, you know, it's not just about that one. There's been other incidents around the world. So um, it's a, it's a, a, oh, look, it's a, it's a really, depressing sort of scenario because we were already well behind on our vaccination mm. program. So now we're suspending one of the key. Um, and AstraZeneca was supposed to be the, the game changer three months ago or three weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what we were told. Um, yeah, it's, it's a serious enough situation. I think an awful lot of countries have actually suspended using this um, for the time being and um, waiting for um, an investigation. Into it. Um, so, you know, that's going to affect the, obviously, the amount of our uh, vaccines coming into the country, but then Johnson and Johnson have, has been cleared um, for uh, vaccination use. So we're supposed to be another game changer, we're told, um, and it's only one jab. So um, the seemingly the country did um, buy a lot of them, and uh, you know they're expecting them to start coming in. But I think Johnson and Johnson have said they won't be able to get stuff in until the end of March, early April. Um, so it looks like I think the vaccination rollout 
looks like uh, I'm not blaming the government on it um, on this one. <laughs> you could blame them on a lot of other things. Um, but the, that the rollout is going to be slower than expected. And I know they, they did get 45,000 um, uh, Pfizer ones um, from a, an unexpected source from the European Union there during the um, week as well. So that's supposed to be coming in at the end of the month. Um, but listen, we've something like half a million people vaccinated with the first dose. Um, other countries like Britain are, are way ahead and we know why. Um, so we can't really compare like with like, but the slowness of the European Union in actually um, getting access to the vaccines, clearing them, buying them and getting them uh, from the, the pharmaceutical companies. Um, and then, listen, you could go into another area like that as well in relation to um, uh, van der Leyen saying that she wanted 70% of Europeans vaccinated by June. And yet we're seeing countries like Africa, Third world countries that still have got very, very even their health workers haven't received the the, uh, the vaccine yet. So the whole big story around this, um, um, and then there's other areas as well. Um, I don't know whether you want me to go on, Dave, about how um, the the whole pandemic is affecting obviously workers who've been on um, put payments and who are on who are on their temporary wage uh, subsidy schemes. And how that's impacting impact their daily lives and their income. Um, but I, maybe you leave that until later on in the programme. We can sort of deal with that a bit more detail. I might jump in there, uh, Joan, on what you're saying around the, the vaccinations as well. And look, I, I know you're saying like we can't blame the government for this one. But I'm sure the government are still breathing a sigh of relief um, over the fact that they'll have another thing that they can deflect blame on as to why the delay of vaccinations is happening. Um, but like not to be forgotten that... You know, AstraZeneca had already said that they were only going to be able to do about a third of what they had promised. And that was on the same day mm. that they had announced, um, you know, that we were going to have everyone vaccinated at least once by the end of, was it June or July or something? But like, yeah. there's obviously very, um, you know, frustration. And this will be another de- just a deflection for the government to use as an excuse as to why they're behind. And like, there is, there is an article actually in the Sunday Times that says, oh, now we're going to start tracing back um, to see where these cases are coming and like this is a conversation that keeps happening again and again and like we've been a it's a year now like surely that the tracing of <laughs> cases should have been like primed this but they said they're waiting until they get the cases down to 100 or 200 a day and then they'll start uh, tracking and tracing again but I think there's a key part in this discussion that's missing from anyway the Sunday Times anyway I was surprised not to read anything about and I didn't see too much cover about, coverage about it in the, uh, during the week but it was about the TRIPS waiver um, for the vaccine yeah. the payments. Um, so this week we saw um, that it was blocked at the World Trade Organization, um, I suppose. And this is by rich countries yeah. um, that would that is direct response and effects like poor countries. It's an absolutely missed opportunity to speed up scale and production for these life-saving vaccinations across the globe. And I think we really need to um, have this conversation about why the EU is siding with the US and blocking um, the removal of these patents that would have made vaccines much more accessible, but particularly for the global South, Mm. particularly for people who have not even got one access to the vaccine. Here we're having obviously the issues of like, which vaccines are we going to get? How many are we getting? But that's not even a conversation that's happened in other places who haven't even had the rollout begin, which is really, really worrying. And it's something that we can't ignore, um, that global solidarity piece. Um, as a rich country ourselves, we need to be calling for that, that people's vaccine, you know, a vaccine mm-hmm. available to everyone. We need to absolutely remove this uh, the, the kind of profit domineering uh, big, big pharma companies that are just, you know, literally picking profits over people's lives at this stage no i think you're right there um shell because um i've raised this in the doyle um through pqs and everything with uh, Veracker, um and they're standing by uh, standing with the us and canada as well um and it, i know people are very eager to get vaccinated and i'd love to get vaccinated but um unless third world countries and the, and the global south as you uh, made a point there um the, the the potential of more variants developing and being brought into countries or people that are traveling is you know is going to have a huge impact on the vaccine um rollout and how it's gonna impact from people getting it very ill and, and dying from it, you know. So it's it's a hugely important issue and um 
obviously I'm going to keep on raising the dial all the time as to why our government is siding with the big uh, uh, US and, and Canada and them on this issue. And also in relation to, um, I know I was reading an article yesterday actually in the Irish Times. Uh, no, it wasn't. It was in, um, oh gosh, what paper was it? It was the Examiner about Pfizer. And they they d- deliberately and um, strategically didn't accept any public monies for their vaccine so that they wouldn't be under pressure as in AstraZeneca, where they did, they accepted monies from countries and governments and all that. Um, I think Moderna did as well. But uh, Pfizer, and, and it's in relation to, they, they see this now in six months' time, a year's time, they're going to be making huge money on this, you know, and that's why they won't um, allow that trips to um to um to 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 uh to to assist uh, the global south we're an awful race aren't we humans we, absolutely like, the fact that we, we were prepared to let millions of people literally millions of people die so that a couple of companies can make massive profit yeah. as you said some of the vaccines were produced look uh, it's it's a, it's a it's a point that i've tried to make before but like none of these vaccines would be possible without public investment in the past, whether Pfizer took it or not, right? But the, the intellectual knowledge that they have to get to the point where they're doing these vaccines comes from public investment in universities going back a century and more, where people were studying, you know, paid by the public purse to study diseases and come up with solutions and all that. And, and where we are now, and the reason that we're able to get vaccines out so quickly is because of all those, you know, decades and decades of investment in public um universities in education in in medical care all that sort of stuff so i just find we're a, a very frustrating race when, when it comes to this stuff that we're going to put the profits of shareholders above the survival of the human race and as you mentioned there as well you know we you could put it you could articulate it this way the quicker we can get this out there and into third world countries or you know you know every country in the world just everybody gets mass produced vaccine and get rid of it so that there is no potential for mutations and the who just to stay on this because page 14 of the irish times has that article world health organization calls for end to vaccine export bans and it says in this u.s stockpile a ban on vaccines from the united states has led to 30 million doses of AstraZeneca vaccine accumulating in an Ohio facility. So it's more useful for these companies to let 30 million doses go off and waste in an Ohio facility than to actually give them to developing countries uh, free of charge. They'd rather let just sit on them rather than try and kill off this virus once and for all, which is yeah. extremely frustrating. One of the things, and again, I don't want to hog this too much, but there's an article in the page 18 of the Sunday Indo about, um, well, the quote is, in the headline of the story is, the government will have a revolution on its hands if things not better by June, right? And there's a quote there from David Cullinan. Um, it, it's midway through the paper, but it's talking about how Germany announced that in addition to the 64 million Pfizer doses it was receiving under the EU deal, right? So we all got a per cap, all countries got a per capita type of investment yeah. in this, right? Um, Germany went and secured an extra 30 million doses by doing its own agreement, right? And and this is the, the line that, you know, when, when people say, oh, there's nothing the government could do about it. Most other countries in Europe, including the likes of Malta, small countries, um, Malta announced it was spending an extra 2 million purchasing an extra 80,000 doses of Moderna. And Denmark did it. Like most countries in Europe seem to have been not just reliant on the EU deal, but gone off and sourced their own as well. So when we say, you know, there's very little that the government can do. Yeah, nothing they can do under the EU deal, but they could certainly go off and secure extra doses in the way other countries are doing it too. So it's, um, yeah, it's it's an interesting one there. Uh, I think there's a question mark over that as well. I know that some uh, five countries have have written to Van der Leyen demanding that there's a debate around the issue because we're hearing stories like that, that Germany and other countries are side buying as such. Um, And they, they, Slovakia, places like that, Austria, um, they've called for an immediate meeting of the EU to discuss out this, you know, that it's just not... It's not on. You could have countries going way ahead of other countries because, you know, of, they can't afford to do it. Like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's um, there's a moral and ethical argument attached to it all as well. But, um, mm. 
yeah, it, it's it's something that the Irish government doesn't seem to have pursued whatsoever. We're not even having the debate around it because the quote in it says, the government disputes the contention that there are types of deals that Ireland missed out on, insisting uh, it availed of every top up that was available. And then the next article on the next page, I love when they do this, they put an article that contradicts something someone else said on the previous page. It says, let's use our Irish charm to get a better vaccine deal. And it's an article by Luke O'Neill, who's just saying, you know, we can go off and source our own deals as well as the EU stuff. So the government are saying one thing on one page and then the yeah. other over on the other page saying, nah, you're so lying. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, Michelle, have you got anything else on that or do you have any other stories you want to jump in on? Yeah, um, I was having, here on the page two of the Sunday Times as well, there's an article around um, a review of the protests um, that happened in Dublin, the anti-lockdown um, protests. Obviously, there was a lot of media coverage on. I mentioned it last week as well. So protest review critical of Gardaí is the is the heading. And I suppose, yeah, review into the Gardaí's handling of Lance, last month's anti-lockdown protest in Dublin said officers in charge um, of policing refused extra resources despite voicing concerns about the potential for violence. So apparently here at Intel um, was within the Gardaí that there was going to be a lot of people here who had violence and, and tensions and that might attempt to test policing responses. And th- that information wasn't passed um, to kind of middle-ranking Gardaí who are actually going to be at the face of this. I suppose I bring it up because, as well, because yesterday uh, here in Waterford, we had an attempt at an anti-lockdown protest as well. Um, it I, I only found out about it because I was walked by a guard of honour of guards as I walked into town. Um, very strange. Two guards in every doorway. Uh, literally, quite literally a guard of honour. Um, very, very strange. Never seen any kind of policing response like it in my life. Um, for the whole sum of 14 adults outside a church, sitting on a blanket, um, protesting what, whatever, this, whatever they were protesting, anti-kind of lockdown type stuff. Uh, the, the oddest response I've ever seen there was there was even guards and horses I was told there was a guard a helicopter there was vans everywhere it was absolutely over the top bizarre but I suppose you know Waterford hasn't had large uh, protests yet but that is the largest that we've had so far 14 pe- people out of some children um, but I do wonder where they're sh- showing kind of showing response after what's happened in Dublin and Cork but also ahead of Paddy's Day perhaps it was a pre-warning that don't try anything or we're going to have two guards in every doorway in every business in towns kind of stuff. So very interesting response. But yeah, it was mentioned there, protest review, critical of Gardaí and their, how they responded to that. And I suppose another thing as well here on page two, um, there's a something about water, Dave, if you'd like to know, um, is uh, the, the title is electricity costs may surge by 260% researchers warn. So it has a lovely picture of some um, wind, um, what are they called? Wind, wind, wind turbines um, here, very idyllic. Um, and it goes on to say how, you know, renewable energy is going to cost us the fortune. Um, and that's terrible. But actually, if you look into what it's saying, is it's because of the data centers. Um, but, but like this, this picture of like, and like obviously like the renewables is, you know, there's a lot of huge infrastructure to be built there and all of that. And, you know that's absolutely fair and you know there's discussions around how and um, people in communities who are objecting um to them um being on land are pushing it to kind of them to look kind of the offshore stuff as an island i don't see why we can't be looking at more of the offshore stuff anyway um but it's much more expensive and um, so that's kind of the, the main narrative on this article is kind of like how you know if you if you don't if you if you in the communities keep pushing this out of your communities now you're going to be feeling the cost and it's going to be 260 percent more expensive now if you keep objecting now don't be doing that and um, but actually doesn't critically analyze at all the fact that the data centers are like like i, I yeah i just like it's a conversation that we keep happening having over and over again but there's like a very small bit of this where it actually mentions that the data centers are absolutely going to be hoovering up most of this energy anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then it talks about zonal pricing as well. So talking about how, you know, Dublin households could see uh, electricity prices increase fivefold. So not only, you know, do people living in Dublin have to, you know, uh, all of the other additional costs that uh, living in the city applies to, particularly around rent and everything. Now it, it, there's suggestion there you might also have to... Um, pay for a lot more on your electricity 
But yeah, it does say like the demand, electricity demand is expected to increase by 28% and 55% by 2030, depending on whether all planned data centres go ahead. That's the key line in this article, and it is minuscule. But it's basically the reason why <laughs> the prices are going up is because the demand is going up huge amounts and because of the data centers. And that's why we need all of this, like huge amounts of infrastructure is to provide for them. And I suppose that kind of ties in as well. There's a comment piece in the Sunday Times as well, and it talks about austerity and our mountain of debt can't be overlooked and it must be scaled. Um, so it talks about obviously like how we're going to pay for COVID, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a line in it then it's like, but all that has to be paid for, that means widening the tax base, increasing the rate and straight in there comes the suggestion of water taxes. Um, so there we go. Um, that paints <laughs> narrative for you um, again. But uh, I thought you might be interested in those stories, Dave. It isn't, isn't that brilliant? So those data centers that we've, covered again and again on this show yeah. not not just only i think last week we covered it didn't we michelle we were talking about how we're redirecting the shannon to dublin because there's a water shortage as a result of the data centers during hot periods of time they need to cool their servers and all the rest of it what what store or what paper was that in uh, michelle because i'm looking at a similar article in the business post here that's right Sunday times. Yeah, all right well that that's interesting that they're covering it at the same time because daniel murray again the journalist who's been covering this for for a long time now data centers yeah. his headline the headline in the business post there and john you i don't know if you've read it yet but it says dublin energy shortfall predicted pre- predicted after esb drops two gas projects so that's right jim the, the esb now is going to have to pay two million euros in termination fees after it's pulled out of building two gas fired power generators in dublin next year um and you know it's it's related to what you're talking about because right beside that Daniel Murray has his own opinion piece about this saying, and this is a great headline, power-hungry data centres could starve the rest of us. And he's not wrong at all. This becomes a question of, you know, we we produce a certain amount of electricity. What's the priority? Is it data centres or is it human beings using their washing machine and their dishwasher? We're going to increase the price for people trying to clean their kids so that these guys can actually you know use as much as they can so and avoid paying taxes and related to the austerity stuff that you're talking about there you know i was looking this up just i do this every now and then just ireland's debt just to check it out see what what it is you know and how it increased previously during the last period of time like we all know that the bailout cost 64 billion euros that's the figure that they give right but at the particular moment in time that it happened i think we had about 50 billion in debt we now have 230 billion in debt roughly right but it's fine. It's all fine because it's debt to GDP ratio that's important. And our GDP ratio, debt to GDP ratio is well under the fiscal rules. Um, and I, I presume most people listening to this will understand that I'm talking about a fictional figure of the G- debt to GDP because GDP is just so up in the air and, and, and open to fluctuation. But, you know, we're, we are looking at a period where we, already people are out there saying, how are we going to pay for the pandemic unemployment payment? How are we going to pay for this, that and the other? And there will be those who will say we need to pay back um we need we need austerity and that means water charges that means increased electricity charges that means reductions in social welfare that means this that and the other and the left needs to get its act together to fight this like like i mean it took almost six years for the big water charges protests to kick off six years of austerity that actually got to that point we can't afford to do that again so i don't know joan you might want in on some of that stuff seeing as yeah, and on top of that, we're supposed to be looking at uh, 70% of our energy uh, being, uh, uh, what's the word, um, renewable energy by 2030. Um, and this is not going to be achieved, and so that's linked in with our climate action, um, et cetera, um, which is going to be crucial to human beings living on this earth, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so where where the priorities, as you said, Dave, is it for the data centres or is it for people um, who needs, you know, to put on their washing machines. Um, people are going to be driving their cars by with electricity as well. That's the, the, the target. Um, so everything is, is very, very contradictory. Um, and I, I think that's just, that is the very nature of capitalism. Um, that, you know, things that could be powerful for, for human humankind is just used to make profit. Um, and we get the crumbs off the table, get some gain out of it, but not the gain that we should get out of it. Um, yeah, it's um, it's 
crazy stuff. Yeah, I'm going gonna... And they've also opened up a consultation process now with communities about wind, wind energy and all that. And again, it's linking in what Michelle said about, um, you know, say to people, your bills are going to go up by 260%. Um, and then they have the consultation to try and convince people that wind farms are good, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's all... Carrot yeah. and stick. Candle. Here's the stick. We're going to tell you that, you know, yeah, they're, they're, your bills are going to go up by two, 260% unless you put this wind farm in your backyard. Yeah. And we do a true consultation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It could go up by more than 260%. Uh, it's, it's, it's mad. And um, Joan, I'm going to, going to stay with you for a second because um, there's two stories really one that's not covered in the papers and one that's in the papers there's one there in the business post I don't know if you've read it yet um, Coalition Consults AG on difficult yep. complicated redundancy <laughs> issues do you want to talk about that for a second? Yeah um, people may know or not know that um, at the beginning of the pandemic when we brought in when the government brought in legislation um, they brought in legislation that stopped uh, the right for workers to claim redundancy from their employer um, during the pandemic because they were afraid that there was going to be large-scale redundancy programs could put some companies and businesses out of work and yet the plot in, the, the boss can re, uh, make you redundant during the pandemic um, and it looks like now that um, un, under the state's employment laws all workers are legally entitled to two weeks per pay per year of service from their employers if they are made redundant up to a maximum of 600 euro a week now it looks like that the PUP payment will not be included um, for your redundancy payment. Um, those who had less than two years of continuous service in their job before they went on the PUP will not qualify for an, any redundancy at all. Um, and Patricia King is quoted in it saying they had um, warned that workers should not be punished for losing their jobs during the pandemic. The time you spend on the pandemic payment has to be, in our judgment, reckonable for service. It is grossly unfair that it is not. So this is another issue that we're going to be facing into. And um, many companies as they come back um, after the, uh, when the economy opens up will be laying off a lot of workers. We've already seen it already, obviously, with Debenhams and um, uh, what's the group of workers that... Arcadia. Lost job, Arcadia. Arcadia. Um, and I think it's going to be more imperative now that workers get actually organised into trade unions to defend themselves because if they don't, they're going to be left on their own and whatever whatever chance you have of succeeding when you're when you're part of a collective when you're on your own it's much more difficult practically impossible so i really urge people to get their thinking caps on now and join unions yeah it's uh it's 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 one rule for labor one rule for capital as we were saying mm -hmm. earlier like it's um an employer as we know from the debenhams and arcadia an employer can still make you redundant but under the old legislation, after four weeks, I think it was four weeks of being laid off, you could claim redundancy yourself. It might have been six weeks or something, but I, I'm, I'm nearly certain it was four. Um, they changed that legislation last year at the start of the pandemic to enable the employer still to use their ability to lay you off and make you redundant. But you can't take any action yourself. And yeah, just as you've said, it's not reckonable service. So we have bar workers who've been out of work now for a full year. Um, mm. since, since the first lockdown like bars that haven't opened um, and those workers are now being told that the last year is not reckonable service for them despite the fact that they couldn't file for redundancy themselves so they were tied to that employer for the last 12 months but that's not reckonable and it, again it comes because we've had a conversation about this Joan off air um, about this stuff in the past where when it comes to a worker taking a case for unpaid wages or some a payment of wages case, right? They can go back six months. They can only claim back six months uh, as, as, as far as it goes. When it comes to a worker claiming unfair dismissal, the employer gets an extra six months and can it has to be over a year. But when it comes to redundancy payments, you're not entitled to anything until you've got two years service. So it shows mm -hmm. you the level of priority workers get six months, the employer gets one year or two years. I mean, they should be leveled off. That, that whatever the employer gets, the employee should have the same access uh, as far as I'm concerned. But uh, it's, an, it's an interesting one. And I think it is one that's going to grow and grow. Michelle, have you got anything there, anything else there? Or um, Yeah, there's a couple of different stories. There's one um, 
I couldn't go without mentioning this. Uh, actually, based in a college around a college uh, incident with students. So the title reads: "Classmates mocked me with Twitter memes." Says student. Now this student is well known to a lot of um, newspapers, particularly in the west of Ireland, um, where the family is. Um, his name is Simeon Burke, and he's a final year liberal, uh, civil law student, and um, he's filed a complaint with the guards and the university after a meme was made of him. Um, but basically, th this guy is from a family of 10 siblings of ultra kind of like conservative Christians um, and are very well known in the west of Ireland. Um, you know, obviously, David's put me on this podcast to give you the, the outside Dublin perspective of the world. But this is something that everyone outside Dublin is very aware of. Uh, the family have sued the college multiple times for different reasons. Um, one, because they were banned um, from society. Four of the siblings were banned from society after um, campaigning against um, marriage and abortion um, laws and misusing college funds was the kind of the line that the college were using. They also sued, um, and one of them, so it was on the ground of religious discrimination. And then they also sued the college then for a breach of contract after not scheduling a viva another time. Um, and they, there was a number of different things where they've tried to sue the college. So the college have taken action against two students who are also uh, running for students' union elections at the time um, um, on, on the basis that they made this meme and shared it around. Um, but the, the other side of this story is, that this guy, Simeon Burke, ran for the student union elections last year and actually ran on a platform like um, that nearly compared um, LGBT people to the Ku Klux Klan and um, very anti-LGBT, spewing a lot of kind of hate and such. Um, but that wasn't an issue for the, for the college. The, the issue now is that the college might get sued by a family who are, have a very long history of suing the college. And it's just really interesting that this has made it into the papers. It's kind of one of those things that you see on social media, on Twitter, and you don't expect to read it in the Sunday Times. But um, he has a couple of different articles of uh, diff other different campaigns that he's been involved in. But he does have links to Gemma Doherty and John Waters, and he's protesting anti-lockdown protest, uh, kind of anti-lockdown stuff. Um, and you know, he's uh, their family are well known for standing outside the doll for like nine hours, pro protesting against gay people. So they have a very, they're very well known the Burks in Galway. Um, so it's just very interesting to see that in the papers and how that's going to plan uh, play out. Um, you know, when a meme is made on social media. You know, um, and the Garda implications there as well. The fact that the guards are involved as well as the college. So, just thought it was interesting. I have to mention it. I know some of the people who are involved, but I think um, my, my time student union hit that. That like the family seemed to be quite well known um, among students, and they they kind of come up in different ways. But um, aside from that, there was something else as well that I was looking at. Um, around the bill to rent sites may derail Dublin's transport strategy. So I think this is really interesting. The National Transport Authority have warned that large built rent housing developments may undermine the official transport strategy for Dublin. So it's interesting to see the, the National Transport Authority come out on this. But basically, they're saying that these kind of uh, mostly kind of one, two bed apartments um, are going to, uh, and they actually specifically name uh, Player Wills Factory in Dublin 8, um, and that are being developed or proposed by Hines and then Glenville Property Scheme and Castle Forbes in Dublin 1. They says that they would not promote diversity of tenure or social inclusivity, nor would they serve a wide demographic profile, including families. So it's really interesting. It says that the proposal compiled, complied with the government's um, apartment design guidelines. So, you know, that they, you know, the government are allowing this, but the National Transport Authority are saying that, you know, really, this is a, a concern. They're saying like, particularly in Dublin 8, given the large amount of student housing and hotels built there in recent years, that it does not meet the transport and land use objectives relating to diversity of tenure um, and a wider demographic profile of social inclusivity because 98% of the homes are one bedrooms. Um, so yeah, it's interesting to see that that point being made by the, the National Transport Authority and that like, you would imagine that hopefully that they, they would be taken a little bit more seriously. Obviously, there's a lot of campaigns against, um, particularly the Player Wills site and how you know how that's treated. So it is it is interesting to see that being mentioned. Um, and obviously, this is the overhang of Owen Murphy's built like baby of built to rent kind of scheme, and um, he is named in the article as well. But um, we just thought that one was interesting. I don't know if anyone has any kind of thoughts on that as well. But Joan might because she's Dublin eight, aren't you? <laughs> I am Dublin eight. Um, yeah, listen, the, the planning 
legislation is just way off kilter. I mean, we have now in Dublin 8 up to 15 student accommodations, uh, planning applications um, uh, given and waiting to be given as such. Um, and it takes, number one, these are luxury student accommodations. They're not for your ordinary working class person who is, who's in further education. Um, they have gyms in them and all this sort of stuff, whereas um, I was just speaking at the Union Students of Ireland uh, meeting there the other night where um, we're putting the bill through on uh, um, rents for, for student accommodation and that and what happened during the start of the pandemic where many students lost their rent because they couldn't get the money back even though they weren't in them because of the, pan- the pandemic and looking at the, the wider uh, question of rents for students um, but uh, yeah um, listen we, we have a, a, another application just giving permission for 1,124 apartments up off on the Nace Road, um, 783 of them, I think, are going to be um, billed to rent. Um, but 300 are going to be billed to buy, and there'll be 118, I think, um, social housing, which I presume the council is going to buy off them. Um, but, it, yeah, it, the development plan is started the 2022 development plan is going through consultation at the moment and um, there's an article actually in the paper by um yeah um actually uh, hazel chu about uh, dublin city council to hold the tide of hotels in the dublin area and um, they well since 2015 dublin city council has approved plans for more than 10,000 hotels or apart hotels rooms to be built in dublin nearly half of these are in central dublin and um, make the point about student accommodation there has to be proper planning um, and planning regulations um, within the uh, within the um, the legislation to have proper uh, community builds and I mean th- this these have been built where there's a case that people are homeless if people can't afford to buy uh, homes and um, where we're we know thousands of people are on the housing waiting list we have people in hopes we've People on the streets, it's just incredible um, that we're not able to deal with the housing emergency as we are. And that leads me to another article that was in the paper as well. Um, hmm, where is it? Yeah, cost rental homes, which we were really pushing for big time from the point of view of um, the left and the councils um, and in, in the Doyle and that, and also obviously campaigns around it, where cost rental homes, we... Um, we pushed for on the basis that these would be for people that are over the threshold to go on the housing list and be for nurses, doctors, retail workers, transport workers, all that type of thing, where um, you'd have uh, security tenure and, um, uh, you know, reasonable rents with a third year wage. And it looks like now that the LDA are saying that hundreds of cost rental homes due to be delivered by the state will charge rents in Dublin Cork that leave average income earners in housing stress spending two-fifths of their take-home pay on rent. That's in the business post on page eight. Cost rented homes will be left for 40% of average pay rates, which totally goes against the principle of the cost rental model um, where you have uh, affordable rents um, and security tenure. So that's going to be another big issue and um, we'll be looking at down the line. Yeah, there's a there's also an article there on page two of today's Sindo. Uh, councils spend fifty million on housing homeless in pandemic. That's right. Yeah, uh, and uh, like again, we had we had Conor McCabe on um, just after the budget last year to talk about um, how how to analyze a budget from a left wing perspective and how they're spending this money uh, on on current expenditure effectively rather than on capital expenditure. Like the investment from our perspective, from the left and from actual for for society, for everyone, would be better if we had actually built public housing rather than putting 50 million into the the, the plaster, putting a plaster over a a failed policy. And that's effectively what it is. And inner city helping homeless, uh, Brian McLaughlin uh, has put in a, a comment there saying we are not surprised to see an increase in the expected cost of funding homeless emergency accommodation in 2021. He said uh, 200 million may be needed to provide emergency homeless services in Dublin this year. And that's quite an incredible amount of money to, you know, to really be given to, as he mentions there, 
that 50% of these homeless providers are privately operated now. So it's really handing money over for nothing, if you know what I mean. Like it's, mm. it's given, um, well, not for nothing, obviously, it's an essential service, but it's a, an essential service that was preventable, that we didn't need. We could have six years ago, seven years ago, actually put in place infrastructure to the capital spend to make sure we wouldn't need to spend this on an annual basis, dead money, as people would call it, you know, um, and spend the money hand over fist about it. So I don't know, Michelle, if you wanted to come in on that stuff first. Or we we could go uh, we could go straight to Joan to talk about your speech in the doll the other day, which was very good. Obviously, it was passed on to me by a member, actually. And um, you, you mentioned Macaulay's Pharmacy, um, who Mandate Trade Union have a lot of members in. Uh, but it was in relation to the temporary wage subsidy scheme from last March. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what happened there? Yeah, um, it was brought to my attention um, by uh, a worker that they had received um, revenue uh, bills um, in January in relation to tax on their temporary wage subsidy scheme. Um, now, for an employer to avail of this scheme, they have to show that their turnover is down by 25%. Um, and um, then they can put a worker onto the TWIS, um, whereby they, the, um, the taxable part of their, their gross wage is just dropped and they get paid the uh, net pay. Um, and then the employer that can then seek up to 75%, I think a 407 euro max of, the, of that worker's wage to cover them as well. So they're really, you know, they're getting well cushioned in relation to this, and I checked, um, I think I sent it over to you as well, the, the TWIS uh, um, uh, pre-explanation pre, uh, um, ex of why they brought it in. It was really to protect the employees, not the employers. <laughs> That's the way they posed it, you know. Um, but now it turns out that the workers, workers are on the TWIS are going to be um, have tax obligations to the tax man now on their net pay from April to March of last year, which is cutting their wages effectively. Um, and these Macaulay's and all, all these people working in chemists and things like that were putting themselves in the front line for the last year. And it's absolutely scandalous. And the, the actual regulations around it say that the employer should and can pay it. And I think we should really be putting the pressure on employers to pay it. Um, and I know you, you probably have a different angle on that as well, Dave, because some employers might be able to pay it. But I know another worker contacted me from Waterford, who um, their his um, members uh, were in the same situation, and they got in contact with their HR. They put pressure on the company, and the company's paying the tax now for them from that point of view. So, um, it can you know we can sort of put the pressure on employers and and the government as well to sort this situation out. It's absolutely scandalous. So it worked out because I listened to your speech in the doll and people should go onto your Facebook or Twitter page to to, to catch it if, if you haven't. But um, this worker was down 2,000 euros uh, mm -hmm. because her employer put her on to the temporary wage subsidy scheme. Which without is, any consultation. <laughs> without any consultation, yeah. So the, the worker gets no choice despite the fact that revenue say this is to help workers out. Um, so the employer puts you on it. You don't get a say in it. You're down 2,000, you don't know anything about what's going on until you get a bill in January saying you're down 2,000 euros, which just happens to be about three, maybe four weeks wages that you're down. Um, so you're, the workers are effectively paying for a subsidy that the employer gets. Not only is the employer, by the way, getting the subsidy of, you know, 75% of the wages of the employee paid for by the state, right? So 75, they only have to pay you the net pay. So they get the saving between the net pay and your gross pay as well. So they're, they're, they're getting a saving on both ends of this. They, they're not even paying you the full net wage. So it's an incredible little scheme for employers, especially the ones like you've just mentioned there, ones that continued trading through the pandemic, workers risking their health, their lives, their, you know, their, their, the health of their loved ones, you know, having to restrict themselves, all the stuff that they had to go through. And yet they're made pay for it at the end while the employer walks away with the profits. So mm -hmm. I just find it a very insulting, but not surprising scheme in Irish society. Michelle, you look like you want in. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just amazed every week how, you know, this we can retrospect uh, something. So we can retrospectively tax these people, but we can't retrospectively help the Debenhams workers. That's not a thing that we can do. It's just yep. one rule, as you said, for labour and one rule for um capital and that's just it again and again it's been proven 
it's 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 a very frustrating one. But fair play to you for raising the issue and the doll. I, I do know that from talking to our officials and, and, and organizers that the members were delighted with it. Um, and they made the decision then after one TD, one person contacted you, then they're all now out there contacting their TDs. Macaulay's, by the way, is a major pharmacy in Ireland. It's, yeah. I think it's the third or fourth biggest pharmacy chain in, in Ireland. So, But they're not alone. It's not just that company. And as you mentioned, Revenue set up a page on their website to allow employers to pay this for the workers if they want to. But again, typical of workers' rights in Ireland is voluntary. So you don't have to pay it. We're asking you nicely, would you please pay it? But the workers, no, you don't get a choice. You have yeah. to pay it. And most of the workers can't afford to pay it. So what they have done is they've reduced their tax credit. So they're going to have to pay it off over the next three to four years. It's going to be an effective pay cut for two, three years because of this scenario. Can I ask um, what, what the mandate are planning to do about it? Or can you discuss that? <laughs> Well, I, I mean, we had, we've had, I'm, I'm not involved in that campaign specifically, but we, our organisers have met with the, the Macaulay's pharmacy workers and they're having conversations about what actions are possible. Yeah. Um, so obviously they're, they've made contact with TDs and all the rest of it. Um, but the, the next steps are entirely up to them. We're, a, yeah. as you know, Joan, we're a very democratic union. So if these workers want to take industrial action or they want to increase the lobbying or go on a media campaign around this, it's entirely up to them. We'll support them yeah. 100% yeah. whatever they want to do. Themselves. And what was good about as well, Dave, that people were actually contacting me as well from the pharmacy, the workers, and people wanted to join the union. So again, it's coming back to this point that workers really should be seriously contemplating joining unions because uh, you've, you know, at, th- at this point in time, particularly coming out of the pandemic, there's going to be a lot of challenges for workers um, in redundancies, closures, um, yeah. your workers' rights, all that type of thing. And, and, and more and more of these issues are going to come up. Taking my union hat off, my official union hat off completely here, not not that I've ever had it on in the show, but just making sure people are aware of what I'm saying here. Like I mentioned earlier on, and they're connected, that you can only go back six months in a payment of wages. So think about when this happened, the the TWIS, as you call it, temporary wage subsidy scheme, was from March to September last year. So legally, it looks like, and I'm not an industrial officer, those workers can't go back and take an official case against their employer because it happened so long ago, um, despite the fact they only got their bill in January. So, uh, But it's it's for an incident that happened between March and September of last year. So they can't do that. So yeah. for me, the only actions that they have is collective action. They cannot force their employer to do this any other way other than through collective action that's why the strike as we call it <laughs> is so important is that workers need to be able to threaten their employer with, we're walking off the job you've got us for six months last year at a reduced rate subsidized by the state you're not getting us anymore if you don't sort this out so that i mean i'm not talking about a specific company one specific company i'm talking about overall that's what workers because uh, this is this is an issue that impacts tens of thousands of workers any yeah. worker that was paid through the temporary wage subsidy scheme last year between march and september is impacted by this this is massive and i can't understand why you're the only one in the doll that's raised this and that this isn't a major issue for the newspapers like i haven't yeah, seen yeah absolutely it's incredible that nobody is talking about this it's tens of thousands of workers with millions and millions of euros lost to workers and nobody's talking about it yeah yeah so and and that, and that is a point. It is, and a lot, of, a lot of those workers, Dave, don't even realise at the moment. Mm-hmm. They didn't even realise they were on the temporary wage scheme um, in the first place. And now they're being contacted about paying bills. I think it's only those who are in the online revenue that probably copped the first. Yeah. Um, well, it was the people who got yeah got an email or got the, yeah. the letter in the door saying you owe us money and they were going for what <laughs> what <Yeah>. i do <laughs> so uh, it's horrendous it really is horrendous that workers have been treated like this you know yeah yeah and and people are struggling as it is you know trying to put their a roof over their head and pay the bills and like they all have increased electricity costs and gas yeah. costs and heating and all the rest of it so to, to hit them with another bill in the middle of a pandemic while they're trying to save people's lives literally save people's lives is just an insult um I, I have one more story. I don't, I don't know if you guys have any more before we wrap up, but um, call for action as number of waiting lists rises to 877,000 yes. hospital treatment waiting lists now at the end of February. The figures have gone up by 34% in a year uh, of people waiting for treatment. This is obviously, uh, this, this, again, we keep going on about it, but this is the lack of preparation by the state for any major incidents like this pandemic, where we allowed our waiting lists already to be, you know, over, you know, just just the wait list to be massive. 
uh, and then a pandemic hits and everything gets worse and worse and people will die because their inability to access these these hospital tests that they're waiting on um, so the figures were released by the National Treatment Purchase Fund um, they show an extra 10,951 people are waiting for an orthopedic appointment, an increase of 17% yeah. in February last year, while a further 3,622 people are waiting for gynecologists. So the, the lists are going all up and up and up as a result of our inability to spend on capital infrastructure and making sure that there's enough uh, tests there for people. So I just I don't know if anyone else has any other stories there or want to jump into that. I think that's a very important uh, point there. I've seen that it was, it was in the, I think it was in the Times yesterday, a brief about the amount of uh, waiting lists that have gone up and up and up. And I see that in the north, one of the hospitals have been put aside for cancer treatment, for cancer operations and all that, because they're so far behind. So, And you're right in saying that we've had a year. We've had a year to fix our public um, health um, service. And that's going to be crucial to us coming out of a pandemic anyway, you know, or coming out of a lockdown. And we don't have the resources to be able to track and trace properly. We mentioned it earlier on. We just don't have it. And it's one of the reasons why Neff had said that they couldn't bring down the levels yet because we don't have a proper public health, you know, um, fully resourced. Um, and these public health uh, nurses and doctors, I mean, they've been campaigning. There was a, a report called the Crow-Holworth report that was brought out nearly 10 years ago saying that they should be made consultants, cons- consultant status, and um, that uh, if we only have a third of what they have in Scotland even from the point of view of public health nurses. Um, and they did a recruitment drive. I, I put a good few questions in on this. Um, and I think for 50 places, they had only something like three applicants because no one wants to come into Ireland to be a public health nurse or doctor because it doesn't have the, <laughs> the recognition um, that it has everywhere else in the world. It's, it's pretty depressing stuff. I mean, you mentioned there, you know, about uh, track and trace stuff. Just I forgot about this story on page two of the Weekend's Irish Times as well, where state stops collecting data on visitors. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> it's funny, later on in the paper, there's a, an article asking, you know, are we looking at an, another um, surge because numbers have started going back in, back up? And then a couple of pages earlier, you're looking at state stops collecting data on visitors. So they've stopped, the state has stopped asking people international travellers who are coming in through the airports, they've stopped asking them if this is essential travel mm. or if this is a vacation or a holiday. Now, why would they, st- and Roisin Shorthall is the one that asked it, yeah. why would you stop asking that unless you didn't want the answer? They know that people are actually going on holidays and they don't want to know it. They're like, no, don't tell us, don't tell us holding their hands over their ears. You can just see it like that yeah. monkey picture where they, uh, the emoji, <laughs> just don't tell us that we don't want to know. But but yeah, and the implications of that, as you know, are we're seeing numbers going up and um, schools are back open it's undoubtable that we're going to be living with this for a long time especially with the news today about AstraZeneca we're going to the the vaccine rollout was going to be a lot slower um, it's just a pretty depressing thing because when we can't count the cost of COVID in 10 years or 15 or 30 years time whenever it is when they're looking back they're going to look at housing and the costs, the increased costs, uh, because we didn't put in place decent housing for people, the you know the the amount of deaths that we've had, the pressure that we've put on our healthcare service, you know, and then there's going to be defi- that's before we even get to the financials of it all, and all because of a mismanagement of a bunch of political parties who've destroyed the country economically decade after decade after decade and they still get the backing of most of the mainstream newspapers and sadly people vote them in again so it's very on that note (laughs) (laughs) but things things are changing look at the last general election and i think it's going to change in the future as well i think after this pandemic i think you're going to see a lot more people out there demanding that we don't go back to what we were before we have to have a decent public health service decent education service We've seen all the pitfalls from the pandemic, all basic things like ventilation and all that and class sizes and everything. These are all issues that are going to be, I hope that people be out in the streets demanding change. Okay, well, I'm going to go to Michelle first. <clears throat> she, she might have to, um, to co- she might want to come in with one more, one or two more stories. So fire ahead there, Michelle. Yeah, I just have one. There's a really striking image here in the Sunday Times of a mourner at uh, George Nkenko's funeral that happened yesterday. And I suppose I bring up um, not only because the photo, obviously, but 
as well, we're seeing um, people in the US uh, mark the one year anniversary of uh, Breonna Taylor, who was um, murdered by a cop as well, while she was like a black woman as well, shot in her home while she was sleeping. And then obviously um, all of the outpouring as well around George Floyd last year. And it's just really interesting because on the back of this uh, really large image um, of the mourner at George Lukenko's um, funeral, who was obviously shot by Gardie there in December, there is an article actually around um, how the Office of Public Works is actually how they responded to um, a lot of the conversation around the Black Lives Matter movement. And it's just really interesting. Um, the, the, the title is Botanic Gardens Probed for Seeds of Colonialization. So um, here, it, it basically the Office of Public Works is investigating uh, heritage properties and collections for links to colonial, uh, colonialism and slavery. Um, so they're talking about talking about like looking at the focus on artifacts and plants uh, collected from Connolly, uh, oh my God, uh, from different countries. Um, and basically they're saying this is in response to the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. So we're having a look here um, to see where these seeds came from, where, where and what where was it ethical and how it was got. It's just really interesting to see that that was the response of the uh, National Botanic Gardens. Um, to the Black Lives Matter movement, especially um, in the, in the uh, kind of mark of the one year anniversary of Rona Taylor and then obviously um, the funeral um, of George Lukenko during the week. But I suppose the, um, if there's a lot of conversation about this happening in uh, the UK as well. And of course, you have like conservative MPs going, you know, that this is the woke agenda. We're trying to rewrite history uh, to suit a snowflake preoccupation is what I said in the article. But um. Like, it's not rewriting history. It's writing the history that they have failed to write in the first place, that they are ignoring very, very, you know, suiting their own agendas. But it's so funny because they're there calling people snowflakes and all of this when it's them who are putting in complaints to Brit Britain's charities regulator to review um, decisions made um, about, you know, how dare you uh, look into the past? Like, this is obviously a political agenda. And, you know, they're trying to say we're putting in complaints because it's not following um, the British Trust's charitable purposes. Now, luckily, that was thrown out. Uh, it was said, no, it is. And it is within its charitable um, statuses. But, you know, we're the snowflakes uh, for, for actually asking for, you know, the true history to be highlighted um, and not them who are trying to say uh, that, the, that the, the, the national, the British Trust has a political agenda in trying to promote that. So just thought it was interesting. And I wonder if the same kind of discourse going to happen now with our uh, conservative figures in Ireland off the back of the Botanic Gardens um, finding out about our, our history of slavery and links um, through uh, the, the Botanical Gardens. It's really interesting. It's, so it's something uh, to add into the mix today. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to wrap up just on it. I'm glad you mentioned George's funeral, George Kencho, um, his funeral. But um, there's an article in the Sunday Independent, and they've got some really sad pictures. Actually, they, the family allowed the Sunday Independent there to take photographs. But um, his sister Gloria addressed those present, and, and you know she was given the, the eulogy, and she said, "Please remember George, not for what they said about him, but for who he is." and who he will forever be in our hearts, a brother, a son, a nephew, a best friend, a cousin, a teammate, a classmate, a protector, and a partner. He is at peace. So I just think that'd be a nice way to, to end it. So our condolences and sympathies go to, uh, from everyone on the show, go to, um, to, to George's family at this difficult time. So um, this has been the week at work. I want to thank our guest, Joan Collins, for coming on, uh, TD for Dublin South Central. I want to thank my co-host, Michelle Byrne, as well. Um, we're part of the Left Block Project. You must be getting sick of me saying this now, but uh, if you want more information about Left Block, um, go to patreon.com forward slash left block. Uh, and yeah, we'll have the website up and running very soon. So talk to you all again soon. Thank you. <laughs>